This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. A little later on in the show, we'll be joined by Joe Posnanski to break down a little bit about the Hall of Fame inductions. We've had a six new Hall of Famers from the era committees. Matt and I will explain all that in just a second. We're excited to have Joe on because he had a personal connection, wrote a book with Buck O'Neill, who is finally getting in to the Hall of Fame. Um, Matt, I don't know if you saw this, but the uh, as the Mets are trying to hire a new manager, there is apparently a mystery candidate. And that just sort of makes me feel warm on the inside because there's always <laughs> a mystery candidate and no one... I'm never sure if that's just like there's somebody that the reporters can't figure out or if it's just like something to create intrigue about the mystery candidate because it's never the mystery candidate who gets the job ever. And you never find out who it was. And I don't know. That's just something very normal. Uh, about that happening is it going to be buck showalter it i feel like people are want it to be buck showalter because i don't know uh i guess there's a lot of people who want baseball to look like it did in 1995 and maybe buck showalter is the, the best guy for that you follow the mets do you care um do i care yes i mean i mean i never thought i would say this in like but i think that buck showalter wouldn't be such a bad idea um i think that like it's a team, it's a high-profile team with a lot of big personalities, and I think that someone with experience handling high-profile teams and big personalities wouldn't be the worst thing after the last couple of years with the the uh, with the with Mets. So um, it doesn't it doesn't seem so crazy. I, I'll say this. I certainly see the logic behind it. Um, that, that, I'll say that. I will say this. I don't disagree with you, and at the same time, I don't believe the Mets failed because of Luis Rojas over the last couple oh, of I, years. Oh, I, I think, I, I, I mean, I think... I think that's true. I think that's true as well. Um, but I think that the I'm not sure. There's definitely some disconnects there. And I mean, that's, I mean, this is generally how these things happen, right? Often you hire a manager. When you switch managers, it's always like, oh, I want different than what I had before. I think that's almost like the natural progression of managerial and coaching hires throughout time. It's like, oh, we, we had a disciplinarian. Now we want a player's coach, you know, that kind of thing. And this is it's like, oh, we, we went with the the – the the young candidate who like knew our knew our guys from minor leagues oh that didn't work okay let's go for like the the old school experienced guy so it's i just feel like that's kind of how these things work all right we do have we did have some good news uh over the last week or so there are six new hall of famers that are going to be inducted next summer and let me explain this i think people get confused about the various ways you can get into the hall of fame the regular way that people think about every year the baseball writers association of america votes on the somewhat more recent players, uh, that vote is due at the end of the calendar year. It'll be announced if anybody's inducted next month. And those are usually the guys who've played within the last, you know, 15 to, to 20 years. That hasn't happened yet. What happened over the last week is the induction, the announcement was made of who got in off of a pair of era committees. What this means is it's sort of like the veterans committees that we used to have. They've now split it into four different, different era committees. So the early baseball era is all of baseball history prior to 1950. 
the golden days era is the 1950s and 60s. There are different eras. There's also like a 1970 to 88 one and a more recent one. They'll vote in the coming years. But we have six new players that got in. The early baseball committee voted in Buck O'Neill, long overdue. Uh, Bud Fowler, who is known as the earliest known black player in professional baseball. Uh, the golden days committee voted in Minnie Minoso, Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, Dick Allen missed by one vote. It's terrible because he absolutely deserves to be in there. We're going to talk a lot to Joe Posnanski about these uh, in a second. I was really fascinated to see that four different players made it in from the Golden Days Committee, Minoso, Hodges, Cat, Oliva, because there are 16 voters. They can only choose four, four players on their ballots. So there's 64 total votes. It is almost impossible mathematically to spread the votes out enough to get five guys in. And they almost did it. They came so close. I really wish there wasn't a cap of four on that. Wow. Were you surprised we got four? Were you surprised we got these four? Um, I was definitely surprised we got four. Um, and I always hate to make it about the people that didn't get in, but it is really kind of a shame that Dick Allen didn't get in. Um, you know, it, it's, I mean, if you look at, I mean, I mean, the, one of his direct peers did get in, Tony Leva, and objectively, at least by, you know, statistically, Dick Allen has a much stronger case, um, or it's just a stronger case, I should say, maybe not much stronger. I mean, Dick Allen may be the most underrated hitter in baseball history. I did a query on baseball reference of uh, OPS Plus uh, for players with at least 5,000 plate appearances. That gives, you know, gives you over 600 names in baseball history. Dick Allen ranks seventh all-time in OPS Plus ahead of, get this, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Stan Musial, to name that sounds fine. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he did have a shorter career um, than those than those players. To be clear, he didn't have quite the same kind of you know decline phase. He he retired at thirty five. Many of those players played into into their forties. It just felt like Dick Allen should have got, gotten in. That said, it's very cool that these other players gotten in. In my younger days, I used to be much more of a a small hall kind of guy, but I've 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 softened. I think it's cool we can get more players in representing. Um, different eras, you know, certainly players who were um, also trailblazers. You know, Mini Minoso was a trailblazer. Tony Olivo was a trailblazer for Cuban players. So I think that, like, um, there's something to be said for that. And, um, you know, growing up in New York City, Gil Hodges is kind of – if you grew up in New York City as a National League baseball fan, Gil Hodges is baseball royalty, and it's kind of amazing it took this long to get him into the Hall of Fame. Um, so it's cool to see see him finally get in. I drove on the Gil Hodges Marine Parkway Memorial Bridge last week. I don't know if that counts or anything. I sort of side with you on this. I would not, if I had to vote, I wouldn't have voted for Hodges. I don't know that I would have voted for Cott. But I've also kind of gotten to the point where that them getting in may, is going to make a lot of people extremely happy. And we need maybe more happiness <laughs> in the world right now. I wanted to, I did want to share something fascinating I found about uh, Jim Cott. He, um, you know, a 16-time Gold Glover, maybe the best fielding pitcher who ever lived, and he pitched for parts of 25 different seasons across parts of four different decades. He came up in 1959 and pitched to 1983, which is just like an incredibly long run. And I was looking at his stats today, and I really, I want to call him up. I actually have his email address. I want to I want to find out everything about his 1981 season. He was 42 years old that year. He pitched 53 innings and he struck out eight batters. <laughs> that is 1.4 strikeouts per nine. And you'd think, wow, even in the early 80s, that that's the kind of guy who'd get torched. He had a 340 ERA and somehow it gets better. 
he in his first game of that year he only faced one guy so forget about that then he struck out two the next time and he struck out two the next time that was half of his season strikeouts right there over his final 38 games 216 batters he struck out four and had a 322 era and like 1981 is not 1881 you know like it's a long time ago but it still somewhat resembles modern baseball and i just need to know everything about how that is even possible it's like my i cannot get it out of my brain it's like my favorite stat right now because over 38 games you struck out four dudes and didn't get lit up oh and i looked this up too you'd think the strikeouts you got were all like pitchers right no like struck out Bobby Bonds, <laughs> like a borderline Hall of Famer. Bobby Bonds and, did, strike, did strike out a lot. That was his thing. Oh, though. come on. <laughs> I mean, still, he was a really good hitter. And I don't know, that that just is fascinating to me. So, hey, congratulations to each of the six new Hall of Famers. Um, we will see if the writers induct any more. I'm not so sure. Last year, the writers inducted nobody. I hardly need to tell you about some of the baggage that the guys on the top of the list carry Schilling and Bonds and Clemens and Rodriguez and you know all the stories we'll see what happens but at the very least we will have these six new members of the class of 2022 inducted next summer and I think that's pretty cool we are going to take a quick break and we will be back with Joe Posnanski uh, to tell us a whole lot about Buck O'Neill and the rest of the Hall of Fame okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. And as we alluded to in the intro, we're very pleased to have a guest with us, a friend, a former colleague, and an expert on all things Hall of Fame. Joe Posnanski joins us. And, you know, Joe, it's funny, as soon as the results were announced and everybody realized that Buck O'Neill was getting in, I think people thought about two names immediately outside of Buck's immediate family. They thought about Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and they thought about Joe Posnanski. And I was sort of thinking like, man, I wonder if Joe, you know, he's probably getting inundated with requests. He maybe doesn't want to talk about this so much. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, if there's anybody on the planet who wants to talk about Buck O'Neill. <laughs> it's got to be Joe Posnanski, uh, because unlike most of the rest of us, you actually knew Buck in person. Obviously, you wrote a book with him back in 2007 and, uh, you know, you got to know him on a, a personal level much more so than the rest of us. And the very first thing I did is I went and I looked and said, when is Joe going to write about this? I want to see what he did. And you did. And it was beautiful. And um, I just, how how did you feel, you know, in a way, like as soon as you knew it was going to happen? Relief, joy, pride, all of it? I, I would say all of it. I, I was... It, it was really a, a crazy day because you know you 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 mentioned uh, my dear friend Bob Kendrick over at the baseball museum. We had spent probably an hour on the phone earlier that day just going over how we were going to handle this because because we ended up doing something together at the museum uh, via Zoom afterward. But more just how are we supposed to feel? You know, this is this is so weird. It'd been 15 years since Buck had just missed getting into the Hall of Fame. And and, you know, it was so heartbreaking. He was still with us then in 2006. And and uh, 
and and you know then of course he goes to the hall of fame and and speaks on behalf of of 17 negro leagues uh players and executives who got into the hall of fame uh and then he died almost immediately i mean it was just a couple of months after he he spoke at the hall of fame it was pretty much his last public appearance so how are we supposed to feel and 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 we really we didn't know you know i mean we we were both still uh, telling ourselves not to believe it was going to happen, not to not to get our expectations uh, or hopes up, and uh, and so it, it it and the way it it played out was so interesting. So I was in my uh, house, I was in my office with my wife uh, Margot, and and we were just uh, sitting there waiting. And and Josh Raywich, the president of the of the Baseball Hall of Fame, first announces uh, the the Golden Days ballot. So. So there's this all this joy because because I have also been fighting very hard to get Minnie Minoso into the Hall of Fame, and and so Minnie Minoso goes in, Tony Oliva, somebody I just adore, goes in, Jim Cott, somebody I just adore, goes in, uh, and and Gil Hodges, you know, who, who you you can imagine the joy that brought to so many people who who uh, who loved him in New York, and 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 it was like this such a happy thing. And it was like, how am I going to feel if Buck doesn't get in? Because there's, this is such a good day for baseball and such a good day for the hall of fame. And then of course he gets in and, and I'm flooded with all kinds of emotion. I mean, I, I cried, I, I, I laughed. I was, I was, it was like an overwhelming feeling and, and all of it directly related to how happy I know Buck would be. And, and it, he, he was somebody who handled disappointment all of his life with the, with the grace of, of, uh, of an angel. I mean, nobody, nobody handled, uh, you know, the, the heartbreak the way he did. And, and to know that he's going to go in to the hall of fame, he's already there, uh, as a statue, uh, introducing people, but to know that he's in there with all the greats, all of his friends and, and that people will be telling his story forever is, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't describe how happy I am. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, that, that he would have been happy because I found it interesting. I read a quote from Mini Mignoso, who just got in as well uh, a few years ago, and he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he really wanted it to happen while he was still around to enjoy it. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. You know, yeah. he's since passed away as Buck has. Do you think that Buck would have felt the same way? Like, obviously, it would have been better if he was here to give a speech. Um, or do you think he would have been happy knowing he would get in no matter what? I, I think he I think it's the latter with him and and by the way I think it's the latter with with uh, with uh, Minnie Minoso as well obviously both of those guys very much wanted to get into the Hall of Fame while they were still alive I mean Buck didn't speak about it as much uh, Minnie did speak about it some but I don't think either of them felt the way that say Marvin Miller felt who Marvin Miller basically said I don't want to go in after I I am gone and and don't let my name be on the ballot. I mean, he was very adamant, but, but I think that was a very different case. Marvin Miller felt like he was shunned from the hall of fame because of, because of, you know, the, the, the fights that he'd had with baseball and with Buck and Minnie, it was a much different vibe, right? Like, like Buck didn't go into the hall of fame. He fell a vote short. He only was really on one ballot in his entire life. And and really was only considered one time. And that one time he was considered, he fell a vote short. People who felt like they couldn't quite find the package to, to get him in, right? Like he wasn't, he wasn't really a hall of fame player and, and he didn't get to manage 
very long in the Negro Leagues, and and he was a great scout, but that's not really something the Hall of Fame considers. And he was a, uh, a pioneer, the first African American coach, and he was this great spokesman. But it's it, it's hard for the Hall of Fame uh, voters to sort of step out of these boxes that they build, and so you could understand that with many sort of the same thing. Like, you know, how do you consider Minnie? Do you consider him as a Negro Leagues player? He wasn't really in the Negro Leagues that long. Do you consider him as a major leaguer? He came up very late in his, in his uh, career because of uh, the color barrier and, and, you know, had a relatively short career. Then what about all of the other things he did? You know, the years and years he played in, in, in Mexico and other places. And, and then of course, coming back as this, uh, as this 50 year old uh, guy who played five decades and all of those things. So I I think that both of those guys would be extraordinarily happy to know that they are remembered, that they are loved, that they're going to be honored in this very special way in Cooperstown. I know Buck would, I, I just know it. I just know. And not only would Buck be thrilled, Buck would be thrilled with this class. He'd be so happy for Minnie and for Tony Oliva and Jim Cott. These guys were his friends and, and he would be so happy to know that he was going in with this class. Now, Joe, uh, we'd love to get your take on some of these other players who um, were inducted this past weekend, but we'd also like your help kind of, I think a lot of people don't really fully understand how the committees work. So maybe yeah. you can give us a little un- overview of how these committees work. There were there were actually two this year, right? Because of the, the pandemic, they pushed it back a year. So usually it's one committee per year, but this year we had the the golden era, um, which was the, the, the group of guys from, I guess, the 50s to the 70s, and then the early days, which was the, the sort of the... Uh, the Buck O'Neill group. I'm getting that right? That is right. You got it exactly right. So the early days were only for players before 1950. And what made the early days committee different this year is it was the first year that they included Negro Leaguers on the early days ballot. That in the past, uh, Negro Leaguers had sort of been separated into their own category. uh, And there had not been a vote on any Negro Leagues player uh, since 2006. So this was the first year that they had Negro Leaguers on the ballot. And there are 16... Uh, people that are on that ballot in that particular ballot included uh, players, um, executives, and media. 16 people, um, and you need 12 to get elected. And the, the tricky part, and this is particularly the case in the Golden Days ballot, which we'll talk about in a minute, the tricky part is that the voters only get four votes. So uh, you can't vote for more than four people. 16 times four, my math's not that great, but that is 64 votes that are available if everybody uses their full allotment, which is not always the case either. So there is there are 64 votes, which tells you that if it's perfectly aligned, you, the chances are you could get as many as five players. But in the past, what we've seen, and this happened in 2015 in Minnie Minoso's last uh, one, because there are so many compelling uh, people on the ballot, those 64 votes are separated so much that nobody got in that year. And that is, that has been more the, uh, the rule rather than the, uh, the exception. So, so that's the, that's the story. The golden days ballot uh, was yes, from 1950, I think to 1969, maybe or 70. Uh, Tony Oliva did play into the seventies. So Jim Cott played into the eighties, but the bulk of their career were in the sixties. And, and so they, they, um, uh, basically put these 10 players, uh, well, nine players and one manager on this ballot. 
And that committee was not made up of, there was no media on that committee. That was all players uh, and, and executives. And they voted. And as we know, they voted four people in, uh, which is incredible and such a, such a mathematical anomaly because that's 48 of the votes right there, just those four people. Uh, so they voted in Gil Hodges, Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, and Minnie Minoso. And then incredibly and sadly, Dick Allen finished one vote shy of the election, uh, which is was the second time that's happened to him. He finished one vote shy uh, back in 2015 as well. So, so that's how that works. And uh, between... Those five guys, 59 of the 64 votes uh, are accounted for. And we know two of the votes that are, there's only five votes left. And we know two of those votes uh, were went to Minnie Minoso because Minnie Minoso got 14 uh, rather than the 12 that he needed. So it was, it was really a mathematical uh, mousetrap, basically trying to, trying to get as many players into the hall of fame as, as they could. How closely does the committee work together? So like when you think about the regular writers vote that, uh, you know, is taking place right now, really, it's hundreds and hundreds of writers. That's right. They do it by mail. I'm sure some of them are friends and they speak to each other, but it's generally an individual thing. This is a smaller committee. So are they doing it more in concert? And, you know, if so, do you think they could have gotten together and said, OK, well, uh, make sure you all leave enough space on your ballots for Dick Allen? Or is this really just the sort of thing we're having a limit of four is insane because Dick Allen should be in the Hall of Fame. Right. I'm I'm totally opposed to the limit of four. I think it should be a yes-no vote on everybody. Uh, there's only 10 players on the ballot. Let's go. I mean, you know, they, they, <laughs> they're either worthy of the Hall of Fame or they're not. And, yes. and I, I don't I don't like that at all. I am a voter. I am a, a baseball a Hall of Fame voter, have been for many years. And so I can tell you, you're 100% right. I don't talk to anybody about my ballot. Not, I mean, yes, I will talk to friends about it. Uh, but but there's no there's no concerted conversation that I'm aware of that people have about this. But this is very different. These committees meet, and not only do they meet, they meet in person in Cooperstown, and and that's a big deal because the reason that the committee uh, uh, votes this year uh, were were postponed a year ago for COVID is because they refused to meet even by Zoom. Like it was very, very, very important uh, as part of this voting uh, process that they meet in person in the same room and get together and talk about it thoroughly, sort of the way that football does with the Football Hall of Fame, although that's a much bigger uh, committee of voters. But that's what they do also. So basically, you have a whole bunch of people in the room. Somebody speaks up. I, I would imagine in this case, for example, Adrian Burgos, who is this wonderful baseball historian and author and has been one of the leading lights uh, uh, for Minnie Minoso. He is, he's called Minnie Minoso the Jackie Robinson of Latino baseball. He was one of the voters in that, uh, in that golden days committee. And he, I have no doubt in my mind spoke beautifully and eloquently on, on his behalf. And I would imagine other players had other people speak on their behalves. And, and so I don't know how much I've, I've never been on one of those committees. I've been asked. I've never been on one. I would not have served this year because I, I felt like I was too uh, close to some of the players that that were on the ballot. I, I would have recused myself from that. But uh, but I but I you know I my understanding is that they definitely talk 
I don't believe it's a secret vote. I, I think that there is, maybe it is a secret vote at the end of the day, but I think that they do talk pretty openly. I, I think people are fairly aware of who's going to vote for who. So, so it would not surprise me at all if people sort of did the, a little bit of the counting and sort of went like, well, oh, you know, I, I want Minnie Minoso in the Hall of Fame, but I also want Jim Cotton in the Hall of Fame. And and I think Minnie's got the votes, so I'm going to go with Jim Cotton. I don't know if it's if it's that or if it's even more uh, uh, concerted than that. I'm not actually sure about that. I'm glad you've been asked. I was I was actually going to ask you about that because uh, I saw you blogged recently. The very first sports story you ever got paid to write was in 1986, <laughs> and it was called Future Hall of Famers. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, who knows more about the Hall of Fame than you? But what I really wanted to ask you was where you stood on Gil Hodges. And uh, I think, you know, he was a divisive candidate just because he had been passed over almost three dozen times yes. over the years. And I, I say this as A, a resident of Brooklyn, and B, uh, I grew up as a Dodger fan. I feel like we've thought entirely too much about the 1955 Dodgers. Like, I'm just sort of wondering when, like, Bob Borkowski and Frank <laughs> Keller and anybody who had any connection to that team gets in. Are, are we just putting too much emphasis on like this one great team from so many years ago? I think, I think we, we generally do that. I think we generally do that. You know, I think about it. I, I, I am a big fan of this podcast and aware that we don't bring up a lot of football on here, but you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers of the seventies have nine players in the hall of fame. And you know, it's like, uh, if you have nine of the greatest players who ever lived, shouldn't you have won like every single game you played? I mean, you know, I mean, at some point, at some point you, you wonder if we do sort of like, you know, we have a lot of reflected greatness going on. And I do think that there's a very strong argument for that with Gil Hodges, but here's what I would say and why I was very happy to see him get elected. First of all, it made a lot of people happy. And, and I, you know, I think that's kind of what the hall of fame is about. I, I kind of think we forget sometimes that this is a museum dedicated to celebrating baseball. And it's hard to celebrate and honor baseball when you, you keep telling everybody they're not good enough to get into the hall of fame. You know I mean? It's like, it's like, I, I want to be able to, 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 to go there and, and enjoy it and enjoy, you know, all of these great players. The thing that, that strikes me about Gil Hodges case is that it is a compelling life of baseball. And, and I don't know that the hall of fame has done as well honoring lives, baseball lives. Like Joe Torrey is in the Hall of Fame as a manager, but Joe Torrey has lived an incredible Hall of Fame baseball life. He was a very, 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 very good player, but virtually Hall of Fame level player. Uh, obviously a Hall of Fame manager. He is a Hall of Fame manager. And also, you know, the, the role he's played in in the game, uh, you know, keeping the game uh, going for, for so long. I mean, he's just a... It's a Hall of Fame life. And I think Gil Hodges, because of the 69 Mets and being the manager of that team, because he was such a critical and beloved part of those beloved Dodgers teams, uh, because he was a part of the move to L.A. and 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 what that you know played, uh, the role that played in baseball history, I think he has a compelling case. And, you know, it, on this particular ballot, being perfectly honest, if I had four votes, he would not have gotten one of them. Um, but I was very happy when he got in anyway. Joe, I wanted to take a, a moment to ask you about uh, your new book, The Baseball 100, which I'm told makes a fantastic uh, holiday. Holiday, holiday gift. gift. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. I've heard that. I've heard that somewhere. I don't know where, but I've heard that it really makes a great holiday gift. Um, but one thing, so I actually want to ask about this, this, actually, this group of players who got into the Hall of Fame because I noticed 
none of them did make the top 100, your base, your top 100 in the baseball 100. The idea is it's a, your ranking of the top 100 baseball players in history. None of these four Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Tony Leva, Minnie Minoso, or Buck O'Neill or Bud Fowler for that matter, made the 100, but I'm curious which of them was closest to making the 100. The, the close, I can tell you point blank because, because you know, that, that list was, was, uh, quite a thing to put together. You know, I, 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 it started, I started it very simply with our dear friend, uh, and your colleague, Tom Tango, uh, putting together a formula to, to try to, to try to, uh, you know, really highlight the things that matter most to me, you know, peak value and, 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 uh, uh, how you, how you compare against players of your time and well-roundedness. That was a big thing for me when it came to putting this list together. And, you know, Tony Oliva, I've, I've written this many times. Tony Oliva is my father's favorite player. Uh, so I, I think there's, I believe there's something sacred about that, about your, your dad's favorite player. And, uh, and Oliva was just this wonderful, wonderful hitter. Jim Cott, of course, so great for so long. Gil Hodges, we've talked about. The guy who was closest was Minnie Minoso. And I think Minnie Minoso, the player from the 1950s, is really, even now, underrated. Uh, and underappreciated. I mean, he he was such a pioneer, and and it's important. It's it's, it's why he's in the Hall of Fame. He he played such a major, significant role as the first really dark skinned Latino superstar in baseball, and and the guy who paved the way for Roberto Clemente and Orlando Cepeda and 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 Juan Marichal and and you know those guys idolized Minoso. Um, but he was really good. I mean, I think he probably should have won the MVP in 54. Uh, he was, uh, you know, pretty close to the MVP on, on uh, you know, a couple of other times. He was, a, he was a terrific fielder. He won three gold gloves. He had great speed, even though at the end of the day, he was, um, you know, he, he was caught stealing a lot. Um, you know, it would have been a very different, he would have had a very different base running career and he played in today's game. But he was he was a terrific, terrific hitter and a guy who got on base and not only got on base, but got on base a lot because he got hit by a lot of pitches. Uh, so he was somebody who I think did everything well, and he was very close to, to making it on the baseball 100. And, and uh, you know, if, if I had taken everything into account, including including his status as a pioneer, uh, he, he very well might have made it. Joe, what I really like about the way you did the baseball 100 here is that it's like kind of a ranking, but it's also some guys are in spots where they just sort of own a number like Jackie Robinson is 42nd, obviously Joe DiMaggio is 56th. And yet when I look at the top 10, the fact that Babe Ruth is number two and not number three (laughs) stands out to me. Why? Why did he have to be two and not three? I know. Well, the the top 10 was was so. So as you mentioned, I did this and, and there are quite a few players who are connected to a number to, to the very, to the point where there are two number twenties on, on the list uh, because both Frank Robinson and Mike Schmidt wore number 20. So they are both 20 on the list and there's no 19, which I like to think of as an homage to shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, who is not on the list from the 1919 black Sox. Um, but when I got to the top 10, here was, here was my dilemma. I'm like, all right, well, Ted Williams is number nine and Stan Musial is number six and Babe Ruth's number three. And I was like, I can't really defend any of those. Like I like, like as much as, as much as I love Musial, I, I can't really put him ahead of Williams. And as much as I love, uh, uh, you know, 
Hank Aaron or Barry Bonds, I don't really feel like I can put them in front of uh, Babe Ruth. So, so I look, I could have, I could have jammed it in. So I basically, what I'm saying is the top 10 is a pure ranking. It's the only place on the, on the list where that is a pure ranking of the 10 greatest players as, as you know, sort of calculated and also uh, throwing in how I feel about, about those, those particular players. Well, I think you just answered the last question I was going to have for you, which is really more of a joke than anything. I can see at your blog, you're also doing the football 100. <laughs> and I was going to say, I look forward to finding out on the hockey 100, whether Wayne Gretzky was going to be 99 or yes. number one. <laughs> but if it's a pure ranking at the top 10, you feel like he's got to be number one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. At that point, at that point, and by the way, like the hardest one for me in, in those, cause I, there are a bunch of them like that. Some of them are, are obvious, um, Bob Gibson's 45 and, and, uh, and Greg Maddox is 31. Like there are obvious ones that connect to their numbers. Uh, Gary Carter's 86 for the 86 Mets. So there are some obvious ones and there's some less obvious ones. Like 91 is, um, is uh, Mariano Rivera because uh, Psalm 91 is the Psalm of protection. So I figured like that, that was the perfect number for Mariano. Uh, so, so some of those are obvious, some are less obvious, but the one I had to move the most, everybody else is within a couple of slots of where they would have been anyway. Uh, the one I had to move was DiMaggio and DiMaggio would have been, you know, pretty significantly higher than 56, but I just thought, man, he, that's his number. That's when I see the number 56, I think about DiMaggio. That's the, that's the number that, that I connect with because of the hitting streak. So as much as and as tempting as it would have been to put Gretzky at ninety nine, like that's probably a few slots too low for for uh, for for Gretzky at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, last question before we let you go, Joe. I think the one for, for me that's that stood out the most when I'm looking at the top ten um, is Oscar Char- Charleston, yeah. and I think it's just because he's you know maybe not the most famous Negro Leagues player, but I think as his, as years have gone on, like his reputation has really grown, and I'm, I'm I guess I'm kind of curious how you came to that came to that spot for him because it's I mean he's he's number five and that's that's pretty high you know above yeah. Ted Williams yeah it's above Ted Williams it's exactly right I mean here's the thing it's like the most famous Negro Leagues players as you mentioned are Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson right and then and then maybe Cool Papa Bell and and some others and those are people that have transcended uh um you know even before the the latest wonderful work that that Major League Baseball has done to include the Negro Leagues even before that, those were the players in the Negro Leagues that people knew. And for some weird reason, Oscar Charleston was not one of those guys. And it's 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 probably because of the timing of his career. He played really before those guys and before the Negro Leagues, you know, uh, really started. He wasn't, you know, he was barely, he, he didn't live much longer after Jackie Robinson. So So I think there was a timing issue with him, but it was very well established in that community that Oscar Charleston was the greatest player in the Negro leagues. And Buck O'Neill used to always say, speaking of Buck, you know, that the greatest major league player he ever saw was Willie Mays, but the greatest player he ever saw was Oscar Charleston. And he was a five tool center fielder. Uh, You know, Buck used to say that he'd hit your 50 home runs. He'd steal you a hundred bases. So it sounded to me like he was a little bit of an Eric Davis like uh, player. And uh, which is, you know, we, we've, We've we've all had great conversations about Eric Davis and and his uh, brief period as the single you know most stunning ball player uh, imaginable. So apparently he was at his whole career and 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 then some. 
And, and so, you know, when you're ranking these players, I knew he was going to be my highest ranked Negro Leagues player. Now you're trying to figure out where he belongs on this list. And frankly, I could have put him at number one. I could have put him at number 10. Uh, I could have, you know, found a, a spot. But to me, that was the spot he felt like. You know, it's like he was this incredible five-tool player. So that gives him a little bit in my mind, just a slight edge over Ted Williams, uh, who was really, you know, a hitter. And and that was, you know, the greatest hitter, but, but a hitter. Uh, and then just below uh, Henry Aaron and, and Barry Bonds and Babe Ruth. And then, of course, Willie Mays. You want to hear something kind of crazy? Yeah. As you referenced Eric Davis, there's I'm in my office and there is on MLB Network. They're playing a classic game right now from the 1997 uh, ALCS Orioles uh, Cleveland. Orioles was Cleveland. Yep. Eric Davis is at the plate, literally as you said it. He's always with us. One of the craziest coincidences that's ever happened. <laughs> he's always with us. Eric uh, Eric Davis is always there. Joe Posnetsky, thanks for your time. Uh, I am assuming that next summer you'll kind of be front and center at the induction ceremony in Cooperstown, uh, cheering on Buck and his family. You can buy Joe's book, The Baseball 100. It is a great Christmas gift. He does the podcast with Mike Shore. You can read his newsletter at joeposnetsky.substack.com. Joe, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We will be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, our big thanks to Joe Posnanski for giving us some of his time. Um, it was really cool to me to have someone who actually knew Buck O'Neill on a personal level. Obviously, that's not something you and I were ever fortunate enough to do. We know him from the stories. We know him from the stats. But you could just tell, you know, Joe's real joy because, you know, it wasn't just like an interview subject. It was someone he considered to be a, a friend. And I think that's going to be really cool at the ceremony next summer. Exactly. And, and not, to, not, to, <laughs> not to, I'll tell another book by Joe, but The Soul of Baseball, the book he wrote with, um, with Buck O'Neill is really just like a, it is, it, it is a joyful book and Buck's personality come, really jumps off the page. Um, and it's definitely a, a feel good read for anyone out there who's looking for looking for for one of those and after talking to joe now i want to read a book about oscar charleston he's one of those players i've like learned a little bit about more over the years and as he said for whatever reason he's never really crossed over into sort of like the you know the 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 mainstream list of negro leagues legends and um it seems like he probably should 
I'm with you. Over the last two years or so, I've really learned a lot more about some of the Negro League stars, and um, there's some incredible stories there, and probably a lot more that we don't know enough about, as, as Joe kind of said, like, you know, Josh Gibson, Satchel Page, those are the names that jump off the page, and then there's other guys like Ray Dandridge and, and Oscar Charleston who maybe uh, haven't been promoted as much, so uh, interested to learn more about them as well. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.